0: Hi, I'm Charles Critchell, and I'm the founder and editor of Fair City, a London-based city transport think tank which aims to advocate that city transport can be more accessible, equitable and sustainable for the users at serves. I'd like to start by welcoming you to our Insight series, where in each episode a guest and I will discuss how COVID-19 has specifically impacted the transport network and urban fabric of a global city, and the ways in which this could develop both during and beyond the current pandemic. Today, we're focusing on Addis Ababa, the capital city of Ethiopia and the fifth of our global cities. Known as the new flower, the city has experienced rapid growth since the turn of the 21st century and has since successfully delivered big infrastructural projects to serve its modern day population of 4.7 million people. The city has strong transport, communications and construction sectors, while it is widely considered to be the political capital of Africa, owing to its historical and diplomatic significance to the continent. I'm delighted to be joined today by Brooke Terefa and Sebla Samuel. Brooke is a PhD candidate at the University of Oxford, whose researches focus on the politics of infrastructure and urbanisation in Ethiopia and the wider Horn of Africa region, while Sebla is a geographer and climate justice advocate, who is a co-founder and organiser of Mangud Lasso, Ethiopia's open streets movement, in addition to being one of Tumi's Remarkable Women in Transport 2020. Hi Brooke, hi Sebler. how are you and can you please let us know where you're joining us from?
1: Hi Charles, yes good to be with you. I'm, I'm joining you from Addis, um, from my apartment in Lideta, which is uh, the part of the city that has been hit hardest by corona, so um, right in the midst of it.
2: Hey Charles, um, thanks for having us. I'm also in Addis in a neighbourhood called Gurchola, in one of the green oases of the city.
0: Thanks, guys. So, Brooke, can you firstly explain a bit about Addis Ababa's geography and the ways in which people navigate the city?
1: Yes, um, absolutely. So Addis Ababa is really sort of in the geographic center of the country. Um, You can think of it as a central nodal point uh, for any logistics network in Ethiopia, really high high connectivity, Um, while Ethiopia itself is, is the world's largest landlocked country. So Addis lies in the middle of the Ethiopian highlands, in a valley surrounded by mountains, at the foot of um, Mount Toto. So the city sits anywhere between 2,300 to 2,800 meters above sea level um, and is, is really the fourth highest capital in the world. And yeah, I mean, another central feature of the city that is perhaps important for our listeners to understand is that Addis Ababa's administrative boundaries are really its planning boundaries. What this means is that Addis cannot plan beyond its actual boundaries and that it has that has a set of complex historical and political reasons um, which which we won't get into here but to to briefly summarize in 1991 Ethiopia adopted a federal system of government um, in which the country was reorganized into nine different um, ethno-linguistic regional administrations and two city-states one of which being Addis Ababa and so with recent conflict around the city boundaries the city is constrained in its outward expansion and must expand upwards and so we've seen you know increased high rises and increased density over the last couple of years. And while such constraints exist, um, there are also many opportunities. For instance, uh, 85% of the city walk or use public transport compared to 50% who use private cars. Um, of course, for many, this is not a choice, and I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on that later. But yeah, public transport sort of uh, dominates what we see on the streets, big buses, minibuses, the light rail transit system, which is the first in sub-Saharan Africa. These are sort of the main points that tell us a bit more about the geographic features of the city um, for people who are unfamiliar.
0: Can you describe the ways in which Ethiopia has responded to COVID nineteen and the measures which are being implemented in Addis Ababa?
1: Sure, but before before expanding on that, I think it's important to note that I'm I'm not a public health expert and or nor an epidemiologist, so I speak here as a resident of the city and someone who's sort of observing from the sidelines. But in the last two weeks, we, we have now been testing 3,000 to 4,000 people a day, which for this region is quite high, obviously not comparable to numbers in Europe. Um, we have now confirmed as of today, more than 1,100 cases and, and 12 deaths related to COVID. And in terms of the response of the government, I think two points are important to, to point out here. One is that Ethiopia only has one point of entry for international flights. So Addis Ababa, Boli International Airport, is really um, the only entrance point for people from abroad by plane. Um, So you have the strategic advantage for controlling your one point of entry uh, for a pandemic. Anyone who enters will have to enter through this one particular screening point. And this has been in place since early February. For instance, I arrived on March 10th in Andes, um, actually the day the pandemic was declared. And I was given a piece of paper outlining where I came from, what flight, what my flight number was, what seat I was sitting on. Uh, they did a temperature check on me, and they asked me where I'm going to stay in Addis. Um, this was all sort of to ensure that, assuming the passenger next to me would test positive, that they could then sort of come back and, and make sure that they contact trace me as well. Um, so this is just to give you a sense of the level of detail um, with which the country was operating already in, in mid-February, um, when a lot of European governments and, and the U.S., still had not really put in place adequate screening. And, and I think point two is, you know, in Ethiopia and many other African countries and, and really Asia and Latin America as well, you can't really afford a full lockdown. Um, it's not feasible as there are too many people dependent on their daily wage. Um, there are too many people, individuals, who depend on going out that day, finding a job on some construction site and bringing home food. So from the get-go, the government realized that a sort of complete lockdown was not going to be an option and that a nuanced... Tailored approach with a focus on prevention was was really the only way. Um, and and now that we've seen community transmission really start, um, we'll have to see how how to continue with this approach. Um, but yeah, surprisingly, the numbers are are still not as high as we would have expected two months ago. And um, yeah, we'll have to see how how this plays out.
0: Okay, thanks. I'd now just like to take a look at the extensive and rapid urbanisation which the city has experienced in the last twenty years. Can you explain how this came about and the ways in which the city has been impacted by it?
1: I think I'd have to start in 1991 when the sort of Ethiopian Re- People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, the EPRDF, came to power after 15 years of uh, communist rule by the military junta called the DERG. During the DERG, public investments really focused on rural areas. Um, there was a mass villagization program in the 70s and 80s where they clustered households into villages to provide access to services on the one hand, like education and healthcare, but also to ease surveillance and expand control control structures. So largely you could characterize the late 70s and 80s as relatively slow years for Addis Ababa's expansion and a focus on urban areas more generally. Urbanization dynamics that we've seen now are really the product of the EPRDF uh, coming to power in the early 90s. Um, Although they themselves were focused heavily on the rural masses and less on cities, you did start to see massive changes with the turn of the millennium. What is important to mention here is also that the government after the 2005 election started to articulate its vision of a developmental state. In other words, this was an emulation of the East Asian Tigers of South Korea, Vietnam, Taiwan's developmental trajectories of the 70s and 80s. Um, And this entailed massive investments in basic infrastructure, expanding road networks, power generation and transmission lines, and later growing the focus on manufacturing. And so the former Prime Minister uh, Melle view was that the state shouldn't just sit around as a night watchman, but really actively guide uh, a sort of nascent private sector. And so this rapid urbanization of the last decades is really an outcome of this shift in ideology. And, and as mentioned, I think the 2005 elections were a really main trigger for, for the ruling party, which, which lost the city administration. And that's when you started to see um, heavy investments in the city itself uh, with the aim of Gaining legitimacy through what they called performance, you know, gaining performance legitimacy by really performing visibly, uh, investing in infrastructures and providing tangible reasons for people to vote. Um, and what better way to do that than infrastructure investments and housing, transport, and electricity? So they set up the, the condominium housing schemes uh, with the aim of building 400,000 affordable social housing units, um, you know, in 2005, 2006, um, the term condominium here might be misleading for your, for your international listeners. You know, this is social housing and not a sort of Miami beachfront condominium style that we're talking. And, and also the investments into sub-Saharan Africa's first light rail transit um, and many other urban projects really have transformed the city's facade in the last 20 years. And of course, you know, with an increased uh, youth bulge with people coming into Addis add this as the sort of central spot for urban rural migration, given that it's really the only major city in Addis, uh, in Ethiopia, excuse me, it shows that you know the investments in the city centre are really dramatically needed still to this day.
0: Can you now provide an example of how a big infrastructure project has shaped the city and how it was able to be successfully realised?
1: Sure, I think, I think a good example... A visible one, one that every resident of the city has sort of felt would be the light rail transit, built and constructed between 2012 and 2015, and has been operational since. Um, You know, in the mid 2000s, the the city was in the planning stage for a new mass transport system in an attempt to reduce traffic congestion, uh, ensure that the city would not follow the paths of many other African cities like Lagos and Nairobi, where you know, congestion and air pollution had been atrocious. So plans were actually in place for a bus transit line, bus rapid transit line (BRT) lines. But once the Ethiopian Railway Corporation was formed, um, this was the corporation that was uh, in charge of building Ethiopia's national railway network. We started to see a lobby emerge that was arguing that the BRT was a stepping stone to a metro-like system anyways, and so why not jump straight into the deep end? So quite, quite an ambitious project to build a complex electrified uh, urban uh, rail system uh, in a city that still struggles with reliable power to go from one complex system like that to another. But yeah, so you know, the, the Ethiopian government reached out to, to the Chinese Exim Bank and, and the Chinese government and uh, received uh, a loan, and so the Chinese contractors were hired to, to construct this. Um, the light rail transit has two lines, north, south, and east, west, and has divided the city in four quadrants. Um, it has an average uh, passenger volume of 3 million per month um, at the height of its operations. But what we've seen, uh, we've seen that reduced during COVID, but also we've seen that reduced before. You know, the, the whole system in 2015 started with 41 wagons. And this was at some point reduced to 29 because of basic issues like a lack of foreign currency to import spare parts. So there was massive issues around maintenance work, um, which, you know, depended on importing the stuff from China. And, and systems of this scale are really never profitable. You know, I think uh, the LRT is more financially viable than some of the national railway networks, but it is still running at a deficit and is, is highly subsidized. And so, you know, it has dramatically improved um, public transport for, for a lot of people. Interestingly, actually, it's the middle class that prefers to use the minibuses, where really a lot of the really poor people end up using the LRT. And this has yielded mixed results, I would say. So yes, on the one hand, you have this in place for people to use often. Uh, and, and on the other hand, you know, there, there are still a lot of issues around last mile connectivity, um, connecting to other sy- city systems. That that will have to be worked out over time. So you know, as as Paul Edwards said, uh, you know, infrastructures like this seem both all, an all-encompassing solution and an omnipresent problem, indispensable yet unsatisfactory, always already there yet always unfinished progress and work. And I think that really encapsulates uh, some of the big projects and others.
0: Thanks. And you touched upon partnerships between foreign investors and the government there. And I now just want to take a look at the governance of the city and how this impacts the urban realm. Can you, therefore, explain the different governance structures of Addis Ababa and how this has informed the city 's urban form
1: absolutely so obviously, like any city, we have we have the mayor, which is the sort of executive branch of the city administration, um, you know, and the city is divided into ten subsidies where you have subsidiary administrations which deal to the day to day issues around land, water, and electricity beneath that, you have one hundred and eighteen um, waradas, which are sort of your local councils or neighborhood associations, if you will, which are much smaller units. So that's really a very granular nature of um, the administration, uh, where people have access to the state in their own neighborhood, which which also helps with things like disseminating information, etc. So that's the sort of vertical layout of the administrative landscape. When we think horizontally, the city has its sectoral bureaus, transport, finance, housing, and the heads of these bureaus, together with the mayor, form the city's cabinet. Um, beyond that, each of the sectors has its own clusters of actors, which which I won't list here. But just to give you an example of just the transport sector, you have the transport bureau, the traffic management agency, the transport programs management office, Addis Ababa City Roads Authority, the traffic police, federal transport authorities, Ethiopian Railway Corporation, and and so on. I could go on. And, and what you notice here is that there's a mix of federal and municipal level agencies that have to work with each other in the city space with different mandates, budgets, and, and political clout, which creates a, a lot of tension on how the city is run. This imbalance of power between uh, sort of different government institutions really shapes how certain projects are, are rolled out. And uh, the LRT system I was mentioning earlier was a federal project that was imposed onto the city. And a lot of the tensions between city planners and sort of the federal government became very evident in that project. So, you know, the administrative landscape does shape how the city is rolled out and how urban planning takes place.
0: So you've just explained a bit about the relationship between the city and the federal government, but perhaps you could now touch upon the relationship between the city government and the regional government, which has also been a source of tension in recent years.
1: Yeah, um, that's a good question. You know, when it comes to addis ababa it's it's not just the capital of ethiopia or the seat of the addis ababa city administration or you know even the seat of the african union as as a sort of political continental entity but it's also the seat of the oromia regional government which is the biggest region in ethiopia that surrounds addis ababa and the city administration of Addis Ababa is not like city administrations of other cities in Ethiopia that are subordinate to their regional governments. You know, For example, a city like Bahardar in northern Ethiopia is a city administration that sits underneath the Amhara regional administration. In the case of Addis Ababa, you have both the city administration on the, and the Ormia regional administration sort of sits equally um, you know, because Addis Ababa is a city state and as seen as one of the 11 regional administrations in Ethiopia. So the city administration is really in charge of what happens within the city while or Emir region um, and its administration is in charge of what happens beyond the city's boundaries but you know at that boundary there have been some tensions regarding planning boundaries and land questions which which we won't get into here but um it's important just to reiterate that you know Addis Ababa's planning boundaries are hard and they're strict and they're along its administrative boundaries and so the city is constrained in its outward expansion and has to focus on densifying its its sort of housing areas and um, thinking upwards instead of horizontal.
0: In addition to the city's own governance structures, there are a range of international agencies vying to influence the city's urban agenda. Can you tell us a bit about this and whether you believe that foreign intervention is ultimately helping or hindering the development of the city?
1: Yeah, I think Ethiopia generally sees an onslaught of, of international development actors Non-governmental organizations and, and foreign consultancies um, intervening in an attempt to sort of support city systems in their planning and, and implementation phases. Um, I spent some time with city officials and architects in the city, and they often describe to me that, of course, international actors bring experience and expertise, which is highly valued. Um, in Ethiopia, but, but often these actors themselves are not coordinated. So for example, NACTO might do a project on cycling lanes with the city administration, but three years later a different organization comes and sort of starts from scratch without building on some of the conceptual work and local experience that already exists. And so a big issue for international actors beyond their own lack of coordination with each other is, is also um a high turnover of staff in the city administration. You know, we see on a monthly basis high-level city officials being replaced, moving on, changing jobs, both for political reasons and I assume to to also ensure that uh, nobody gets too comfortable in their role. You know, perhaps the city leadership thinks that they need to rotate all the time to ensure that everyone uh, is kept on their toes. And I, and I think this rationale of constantly moving people around is really an unfortunate element of how how Addis is run. Um, and is not just frustrating for international agencies, but also for, you know, local planners themselves who see their own leadership every year change with new visions, new working patterns that makes long-term planning, you know, five, 10-year plans and consistency among those plans very, very difficult. And yeah, again, we've seen the latest head of the planning commission uh, change jobs after just a year. So these are concerning, uh, I, I think, elements not just for international actors, but also for the city administration itself.
0: Thank you, Brooke. And we're now going to be joined by Sebla as we turn our attention to how people use urban space and how people travel around the city. So Sebla, we've spoken about how top down and third sector governance is shaping the city. But can you now explain a bit about how the city operates at grassroots level, especially how and why the city's residents appropriate urban space?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's important to note that the in- informal economy in Ethiopia and in Addis Ababa is a massive part of city life. And that means that much of the work happens on the street, whether it's shoe shiners or street vendors selling fruits or vegetables or coffee or tea or day laborers doing construction work. This takes place on the street. And this means that both the informal and the formal spaces of shopfronts, transportation, this is all taking place in, in ways that communities are appropriating the public space. There's, there's also these massive markets that we have with Mercato being the, the biggest open-air market in Africa. There's all these different vegetable markets. And these really constitute a lot of how the public space is used. And I think even during this, this pandemic, we're seeing that there's not been a full lockdown of these places because it's so integral to everyday public life. And there's an understanding that there's so many daily wage earners that need to be out in the street, that it's, it's not allowing for a complete lockdown and stop of the use of public space. And so this mix of the formal and the informal is almost sort of like an organic or a spontaneous form of a, of tactical urbanism in a way of how the residents shape their urban space.
0: As you've said there, street life seems to be so integral to the way in which the city operates. And incidentally, walking, cycling and public transport does in fact equate for 85% of all journeys in Addis Ababa, with the remaining 15% of journeys being completed via a private car. Given that the majority of the city's population do not use cars, why do you think that the city streets are so car centric?
2: Yeah, I think just to start, um, we don't have this really like idyllic modal share just because we're all NMT advocates in the city, but rather that it's cost prohibitive to have private vehicles. And so it ends up with a modal share where, yeah, the majority, 85% doesn't own a, a vehicle, but it doesn't change the fact that that's still an aspirational goal. And especially since there's been kind of lower cost vehicles available, the the vehicle ownership continues to steadily grow up. And then we're seeing that with increased congestion and traffic and uh, collisions and air pollution. And so the way that the, the city is designed is kind of was matching this more conventional, I guess, planning, which is looking at roads for vehicles and bigger buildings and, and and not as much tailored to what the context is here. And so you'll see a lot of really large roadways or even when the train's been built here there's not proper crossings all the time for pedestrians. So it's kind of a tension between the reality on the ground but how the planning is with how the planning is being designed. And so this has a lot of kind of negative impacts in terms of the fact that we have a very low vehicle density in the city but we still have quite high collision rates. Um, so road safety is a big issue. Air pollution is a big issue. There's, we're often over the WHO um, air quality limits. And I think this is, luckily, there's the, not the non-motorized transport policy, which I'll touch on later. But this is kind of trying to center actually planning for the majority and having more um, pedestrian and cycling infrastructure and public transport infrastructure to kind of accommodate for this massive majority of the modal share.
0: Can you explain a bit about Mangat Lasso, the city's streets for people movement, and how this links to policies to promote more walking and cycling in Addis Ababa?
2: Yeah, um, so Mangat Lasso, as you mentioned, is Ethiopia's open streets movement. And it's a really uh, wonderful initiative that started in late 2018. Basically, once a month, we open seven different uh, locations in Addis Ababa across seven sub cities to people to cyclists, skateboarders, however you want to move that's not in a vehicle because it's close to um, motor vehicles. And then this basically initiative is around ecological sustainability and safe streets, uh, social connection, also healthy living. And the way that I got involved with it was I lived in Latin America for many years and was first exposed to Ciclovia um, and and would ride through the entire city through different geographical divides and social classes every single Sunday through the whole city. They've been running these kind of programs since the 70s. So I thought, why not do something like that here in Addis? Because you see in a lot of the secondary cities that it is the way people got around it is traditional. It's not sort of like an implanted culture. We actually kind of revive that and move around the city in a different way. And I was able to apply for a grant with a friend from the U.S. Embassy to do some pilot projects around that here. And then I went to Cape Town in the fall of 2018. There was an open streets exchange for African cities, which was a really amazing experience. Basically, planners, activists, researchers from all over the continent trying to make open streets happen in their cities. And I met the director of the Traffic Management Agency at that time and uh, someone from the Transport Programs Management Office who was involved in NMT, non-motorized transport work. So we basically kind of came back to Addis, really motivated to try and make that happen here um, and started meeting every single week. And then in late 2018, the, the former health minister, Dr. Amir, launched this national car free day, which was way bigger in scale than we had imagined because we thought we'll just do this really wonderful pilot in one part of Addis and then scale and all of a sudden it was the whole country. So basically the pro the project now is about a year and a half old and it's really been growing. It take it's taken place in different cities, in Mak'ale, in Bahardar, and Jitma. And the idea actually in March, it was going to be national in every single region of the country, but what had to be postponed because of COVID. And the way it kind of links up with with policy and things, because for us it's not just a, a monthly sort of festival or anything. We want to influence how it changes people's behavior and also how the city is planned, kind of links up with the city's non-motorized transport plan, which is a decade long until 2028 and wants to put in massive um, pedestrian infrastructure around 600 kilometers in the city and 200 kilometers of cycling infrastructure and kind of increase the modal share of active mobility and public transport and, and decrease the movement of private vehicle owners. And actually they've, they've used some of our locations for pilots of this infrastructure. So our most popular location for um, Mangarlesa with the highest turnout in the Labu corridor, they've put an interim cycling lane. So I think that's really important for us in this in, in, that, in, this, in this open streets movement to not only have these monthly um, activities happening in different cities all over the country, but also influence behavior change and infrastructure design. And going forward, hopefully to be able to increase connectivity between the sites and frequency and have more cities participate but have it be part of everyone's everyday lifestyle of mobility.
0: As we mentioned earlier on despite the fact that 85% of journeys are not made by cars the number of those who cycle are very low in comparison to those who either walk or take public transport. Can you explain why this is and whether you think cycling has a bigger role to play in the future of the city?
2: yeah um so if you go to a lot of the secondary cities in ethiopia that's actually still how many people get around is, is by cycling and i think that's that's changing a lot because of the advent of the we call it bajaj here or tuk tuk or rickshaw that's that's really exploding in the secondary cities and it's being used as a taxi service and it's really changing mobility in secondary cities they're mainly banned in um, Addis Ababa, but you still see them on the outskirts but i think it's important to as you look at spatially the design of the city it's it's not very welcoming to cyclists it's you have these really large vehicle lanes very wide where you have if there's not traffic, the vehicles are going at a pretty steady speed and there's not any divided sort of lanes or infrastructure for cycling. And a lot of the secondary roads still require maintenance. So it's not the ideal circumstance to be cycling from A to B. And I think those who do have the exposure when they're younger, it's more seen as a recreational activity rather than a transport or, or mobility mode. Um, so even if children are learning when they're younger that this is not taken up in the future. And that and then there's also the, the way that public transport um, moves around the city. is It's very ad hoc where you pick up or get off any sort of mini bus or anything. You just call out where you'd like to get off so it's very also unpredictable if you are cycling by that to to be safe in that circumstance and also the air pollution levels are quite high so it doesn't it doesn't really create an ideal circumstance to be cycling and then those that you do see it's more men young men who are cycling but the but the circumstance and the for cycling in the city is really precarious. But with the non-motorized transport strategy, this is really kind of aiming to change. They, they wanna have increased percentage of cyclists in the city, but also equal split across genders. And then there is the intention to have bicycle sharing. I think it's around 10,000 bicycle sharing, bicycles for bicycle sharing programs by 2028. And then, like I said before, 200 kilometers of cycling lanes and I think 20 kilometers of greenways. And then they have different strategies with communications and engagement, such as having kind of political leaders riding uh, bicycles to kind of change what the perspective is towards this and improve the infrastructure. And I think if, if it's connecting with Mangatleso, I think this can be an opportunity for people, because we do have um, stations where people can learn during Mangatleso, that that can also create just individuals or groups that are more willing to use that as a form of getting, getting places and not just something recreational.
0: You've spoken there about some of the barriers and the challenges, which those who cycle in the city must contend with. But do you think that there's any scope for de-incentivising this limited car use and in turn further incentivising cycling via subsidy schemes or something similar?
2: Mm -hmm, Definitely. And currently, we have really high taxation on on private vehicles. So it ranges from usually 100% to 200% import tax, depending on a small or a large size vehicle which obviously makes them really cost prohibitive and only kind of available to a certain economic class of the city. But what it, what it does in practice is it makes vehicles never depreciate in value. So it's not uncommon to see vehicles from the late 80s driving around the city every day. But also this means that um, the quality of the vehicle, the air pollution that it emits is, is really toxic for the city. And so I think kind of it would be important to sort of flip those incentives so that we're not kind of overfilled in the city with with old polluting vehicles but also have sort of incentives for uh, public transportation and also bicycles and to have that more readily available so we can kind of encourage a modal share that continues on the trajectory that we have now but ensures that it's of good quality.
0: So we have now turn to health and the environment. And as you did briefly comment upon the air quality levels in the city, could you now explain the city's position on climate change and why this is important for the future of both Addis Ababa specifically and the country more broadly?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think just to start, I want to, just in the importance of climate justice, mention that as a continent, Africa has such a minimal carbon footprint, I think it's between three and 4% of global emissions. So because of this, the kind of continental aim and same for Ethiopia is focused more on climate resilience and adaptation rather than mitigation and um, emissions reduction. And so we have this really ambitious goal and tar- target for the whole economy in the country, which is to reach middle income status by 2025 while maintaining a green economy. So this is kind of aligned in the country's first and second growth and transformation plan, which guides like the economic framing of the country and also the climate resilient green economy strategy, which highlights pathways for climate resilient and low emissions development for key sectors. And then specifically for Addis Ababa, there's a climate action plan that's being developed and it kind of aligns with the Paris Agreement that it would be a carbon neutral city by 2050. And then the interim target is by 2030, it would reduce its business as usual emissions from 2010 by 64%. And then within the strategy, the climate action plan, they have different sectors around energy, around transport, around waste industry. And the last one is agriculture, forestry, and land use change. But the, the focus ones are those first three, energy, transport, and waste. Um, and so for the mitigation sector, they've, they've done these different emissions inventories for the city from 2012 and 2016. That one's being finalized. And so for energy, they're looking at buildings and also heating and uh, the way we cook food with charcoal wood kerosene all these trying to switch these to renewable sources or have energy efficiency etc transport looking at what are our current emissions how can we switch these to electric mobility or mass transit or non-motorized transportation and then with waste kind of reducing the amount that we send to landfill or including more yeah waste reduction, composting, um and then at the very end, perhaps if we don't reduce it all, kind of landfill, better landfill management, things like this. So that's a big component of the mitigation um of the climate action plan for the city, and then the resilience component is is more seeing okay, what are the predictions for for rainfall, how is this going to affect flooding in the city or temperatures and, you know, in the instances of drought? And then from that, developing specific um, kind of climate actions that can take place and and what are the, the sectors that can take those on? So assigning if it's related to transport, the transport agencies that can kind of carry them out and have developed these memorandums of understanding with the different agencies. So C-40s carry that out with the environmental protection authority which has a much longer name now but that is the the crux of the name and i think just just as a city that is massively growing and as the second most populous country on the continent it's really important that we are thinking about about climate adaptation and although you know we're still a, a rural society kind of having our eye on the city that everyone's moving to here and making sure that you know we have these months coming up where it's just pure rains how are we adapting are we are we like trapping or capturing rainwater so that we can carry this over through the dry months, or just kind of really thinking in a dynamic way to make sure that we're resilient as as the climate changes, regardless of the fact that we're not the main contributors of its change.
0: So you've just described some of the ways in which Addis Ababa plans to embed resilience into its practices with regard to adaptation in the face of climate change. But I'd now like us to consider whether the pandemic has affected the production of goods and the resilience of the city's supply chains. So given that farming is such a big part of Ethiopian culture, is this something which the city's authorities are promoting? And how do you think it could play a role in the future of the city?
2: Yeah, I want to stress, I guess, that everyone's kind of family history in this country is really bound up with the land and with farming. And I think if your parents weren't farmers, your grandparents definitely were. I think that's a pretty common story here. And the way that it plays out is is it's such a massive part of the of the culture and the society, but also the economy. It's more than half of, or more than fifty percent of the country's GDP, and I think more than eighty five percent of the the labor force, and a large component of our foreign exchange. So this ends up kind of meaning that a large sector of our our budget for a, this coming decade and generally is, is dedicated towards agriculture and then there's been kind of calls more recently from the prime minister and also the mayor to look at this urban agricultural space and kind of new technologies be it vertical farming or hydroponics and different ways that um, we can grow food in the city as it's, it's growing so rapidly and then in this way kind of increase resi- the resilience of the city the food resilience of the city and have more circular food systems to not be as reliant on super long supply chains. I mean, there's a lot of different initiatives that are kind of focusing on urban food. And I I know that currently land in the city is also being allotted to young entrepreneurs to to develop that land for urban food production. Um, And there's a lot of media around it and calls for proposals and looking for workers. So I think it's currently burgeoning. There's an urban agriculture commissioner. So that's, I think, a space that can really take off. And I think there's a lot of potential of like where it could be used, be it um, rooftop gardens or community gardens. There's an organization called Food Secure Africa and they do school gardens. So there's a lot of potential for that to kick off. And it's being kind of embraced with city administration as a space to to have more resilience and also connects with the city's action plan.
0: And finally, Ethiopia and the city of Addis Ababa have made great strides towards modernization in the last two decades which, in part, appears to be driven by an ambition to lead competing African countries. So how optimistic are you for the future of the city in becoming more accessible, equitable and sustainable for its inhabitants?
2: I think from the perspective of mobility and the kind of transformation I've seen with Mangud so I'm super I feel positive, I guess, about what the what the possibility is of having more equitable forms of moving around the city. And I think I've seen that from the struggle we sort of had at the beginning to kick this off to how popular it's become and how much the community is demanding for more, and also how it's changing people's mindsets and the planning. So that gives me a lot of hope. I think in terms of infrastructure and planning, I would love to see a lot more mixed use, mixed income homes and like. A more preservation of our heritage and historical buildings and to make it feel like we can maintain sort of a urban cohesion that allows for mixed social classes and backgrounds to kind of coexist in the city and that we don't have any divides by economic classes. And I think it, that needs to become a, and, and stay a central part of how we plan the city so that it's for everyone.
1: I think, I think from my end, it's sort of a, Pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the world, (laughs) if if you will. (laughs) Um, Since, you know, since the new administration came in into power in 2018, I think we're seeing a different urban form take shape. You know, there's a shift in emphasis uh, away from pro-poor investments focused on social housing, electricity and accessible transport to high-end real estate projects like Lagar, which is an, uh, built by an Abu Dhabi-based um, real estate company targeting, you know, urban elites, the diaspora, and tourists. Uh, you know, we're talking about five-star hotels, uh, grand malls, um, you know, palm trees lavishly tucked in between water fountains. You know, that's sort of the urban uh, imagination that's currently taking hold. And, um, you know, we've also seen a new urban investment in a, in a riverside scheme called Beautifying Shagger which is intended to increase urban land values and to generate revenue. So I think, you know, we're, we're currently creating elite enclaves in others and that makes the city a lot less accessible and very expensive to live in. And, and so in that sense, I'm not optimistic. What, what does make me optimistic is the fact that, uh, you know, over the years we've built a sort of young climate conscious professional generation of urban planners and architects um, that are really aware of the importance of heritage, maintaining the existing urban social fabrics and maintaining our motor shares. So, you know, those people give me hope in talking to them and their engagement and their activism. Um, and I think that, that you know, if, if we have the right leadership in place that sort of listens to this professional group of individuals, we, we would better shape our urban planning. And, and that gives me some hope, but I'm not blindly optimistic.
0: Thanks, Brooke, and thanks, Sebla. I think it's just worth pointing out that that's been a really comprehensive overview and that, as with most other cities, there are inevitably challenges ahead, but also genuine opportunities for developing the city beyond the current pandemic in the interest of its inhabitants. So thanks again for joining me.
2: Wonderful. Great.
1: <laughs> thanks, Charles. Thanks for having had us.
2: had so much fun. <laughs>
0: Fantastic. So just a reminder that you can learn more about the great work which both Brooke and Sebler are doing by following Brooke on Twitter at T-E-R-R-E-F-E-B-I-R-U-K, while Manged Lasso are on at m e n g e d. L E S E W. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you did enjoy today's episode, please do take the time to leave a comment, tell your friends, and of course, please do subscribe. Finally, please join us again for our next episode, where we'll be taking a look at how another global city is responding to the transport, urban and environmental challenges posed by COVID-19.